And the same thing in Cuba, women were marrying men from other countries and really just suffering the, the worst spiritual abuse. You ask for a hula. Goodbye. See you later. I'm out of here. and the character of the Prophet with love. What is the love, the mercy? It's not about halal, haram. Yes, no. Black and white. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin. Today I have with me Sister Zainab uh, Ismail. That's correct. Nice to meet you, Sister Zainab Ismail. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, first and foremost? I, I know of you through you know social media and activities, and it seems like you're doing a lot of lovely work, especially for uh, the convert community and uh, specifically in South America. So I'm wondering uh, what kind of... Uh, oh, one second, Sister Zainab. My wife, Paula, wanted to join us. Come on. Come, on come meet Sister Zainab. MashaAllah. How are you? Mashallah. I'm doing good. Very excited to meet you. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to meet you as well. I Thank heard, you for joining us. I heard you're going to Brazil soon. So, Yes, I leave next week, Tuesday, to Sao Paulo. Oh, great. Shalom. I'm from Rio. Uh, mashallah. Uh, the editor of the book, Sister Maria, she is from Rio. So she'll be joining us from Rio in Sao Paulo. That's, awesome. That's great. I, I mean, it's super excited to hear uh, what the work you're doing in my country. Alhamdulillah. Uh, as long as it's a benefit and we can continue to benefit the people, especially the sisters, alhamdulillah. I mean, They haven't really had much exposure to traditional Islam. There is no access to traditional scholarship as far as I know and have been made aware by the team on the ground. Hmm. So their main concerns or what they're really trying to brainstorm, which we will meet with that small group. At, uh, we will be at Santo Amaro Mosque in Sao Paulo most of the days. We will meet with that team in the morning on Saturday to do some kind of like, okay, small training of starting of a training like how do you teach the material mm. obviously they're not students of knowledge some of them are students of dr umar farooq and sheikh muhammad ajilani so they have some understanding but in terms of actually presenting the material that's where they would want more guidance moving forward because really you can't just hand someone a book. Right. It yeah. needs to be conveyed person to person. And especially with the converts, it's really being there, being there from them. And from what I've seen, there's this very black and white, harsh, halal, haram, do this list of rules. Classic. At, right. So they're, you know, they need to learn how to embody that prophetic character because really... The teachers that I learned from here, I mean, when it comes to Sharia and Fiqh, they're stern. But when it comes to working with new Muslims, you have to be gentle like a baby. Right. Everyone is coming with a different background and traumas and, you know, just experiences that really the understanding to have patience with each person individually is so critical for someone to thrive in their path to Allah right. versus having this like, oh, you can't do that. You can't do this. It's like, or, or 
paint this picture that they have to take on a certain culture or that they have to dress a particular way or with particular colors or do a certain thing to indicate that they're Muslim. Right. So that's the biggest thing is really reinforcing the team on the ground, how to expand on this project so that they have options versus what presently is available in the majority of the Spanish speaking world and also in the Portuguese speaking worlds of a much more rigid way of teaching Islam. Yeah, and you bring up some very important points that I think are common themes, generally speaking, within the Muslim community and, you know, and converts generally, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's always these uh, big red flags, like when you become Muslim, we don't understand people have a timeline, just like in the Seat of the Prophets, I sent them, I mean, they were still drinking alcohol after they could pray five times a day. And they didn't even have to pray five times a day until 11 years in. Almost. So it shows you that there is a incremental evolution and transformation process that has to happen. You can't just dump, uh, here's everything to be the perfect Muslim now. And yesterday you were, you know, still at the bar, you know, not everybody, or yesterday you were with right. your family in or a Catholic, partying, you know, Christmas party, and now mm -hmm. you're just told, boom, Don't do right? Yeah, like Change this, your whole life. just this totally. flip over, which is, which is actually quite damaging and can cause it a is. lot of religious trauma. And then in the process, the person is almost told that most of their identity is now has no value or worth, which is ridiculous because... I mean, again, it just goes to show the lack of uh, holistic understanding generally Muslims have as we project like, oh, you guys don't know any of this good qualities that Islam teaches. Like, actually, all these religions came from Allah too, and many people, especially from the Latin community, have very strong and similar religious and family values as many Muslims, right? And so we sometimes, our racism can even extend uh, into how we perceive um, converts or how we want to marry converts, right? Or we assume like their value isn't as important as let's say a person from a born Muslim culture. So there's mm -hmm. just all kinds of these complexities that obviously yes. we've observed, you've observed. Um, Sister Zainab, tell me, are you yourself a uh, convert to Islam or you're born into Islam? What's, what perspective are you coming in uh, to this? Alhamdulillah, uh, I am just a few months away from my 10th Shahad anniversary. MashaAllah. <laughs> First time I've heard that. My, my parents are from Puerto Rico. I'm born and raised in New York. Nice. But being a New Yorker, I've been around Muslims my entire life. You seem to be traveling quite a bit to Latin America, specifically with the Muslim community and, and serving and working with them there. Can you tell us more about what that's all about and, and why are you doing that exactly? Well, certainly. So myself as a convert and having been blessed with the opportunity from really the beginning of my journey to Allah to study with traditional scholars. And what that means is teachers or scholars with Sanat or Isnad, meaning chain of narration, mm -hmm. which means that... Uh, they learned from a scholar to a scholar to a scholar to a scholar all the way back to our prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So that opportunity and that blessing alone has allowed for me not to fall into some of the pitfalls and challenges that a lot of converts face because of the lack of resources and knowledge available for qualified scholarship or qualified teachers. So at some point in 2015, uh, one of my teachers uh, 
from Yemen, uh, Habib Umar bin Hafiz, uh, had sent out a notice to North American students if anyone can go to Mexico to help uh, the imam in Chiapas, uh, please do so. So something struck me, given as much as we had been studying the Shamayil, the characteristics of the Prophet, وسلم, the Sirah, his life, and all of these different books on purification of the heart and what really is truly the message of Islam. And as a Muslim, what are we trying to do is better humanity, not just Muslims, but non-Muslims as well. I just read that message from our teacher and I said, okay, I'm going to go. I didn't know when I was going to go. I didn't know how I was going to go. And I said, let me try to see if the imam from Chiapas, Mexico was on social media. And lo and behold, I found him. And we had uh, mutual uh, friends, other uh, scholars, for example, uh, Sheikh Faraz Rabani from Toronto was also a, uh, a contact. So I, I just sent him a message in, in Mexico. And basically, he, I introduced myself. I said, well, I, I do teach prophetic nutrition, which comes really directly from the books of Hadith and the Shamayl, the characteristics of the Prophet Sallallahu And uh, I can teach Fardain, basic knowledge to practice. And I said, maybe I can come after Ramadan. He said, well, it would be really nice if you come during the Ramadan. So, subhanAllah, our nests, you know, for me, Ramadan is like, oh, the comfort of my home, my bed, my food, my, my structure during Ramadan. I was like, how am I going to sacrifice like that? Can I do that? And it was really, I would say, the first time that I did a full reliance to Allah and said, okay, I'm going to go in Ramadan. I didn't know what... Yeah, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I really, that, it was like literally jumping off the spiritual cliff, so to speak, and truly relying on Allah got my back. He has my back on this. I'm not worried. And I have never been a fundraiser. I've never tried to get donations. And for that trip, uh, to also provide a lot of financial aid to the Muslims on the ground and provide them with meals and cover all the iftars and all, everything regarding Ramadan, I was able to raise $12,000, subhanAllah, by the grace of Allah. And so I was off in 2015 during Ramadan with uh, a close friend, and we went to Chiapas, Mexico. Since 2015, I traveled to Chiapas, Mexico six times. And in those trips, I started to learn about the communities in Cuba. And since then, I've traveled to Cuba five times. And in this process in 2017, at the end of 2017, having a good relationship uh, with Sheikh Hamza Yusuf as well, uh, I've been fortunate to go on Umrah with him twice and also with Dr. Asad Tarsin, who is the author of the book Being Muslim. So we were just before going to the RIS convention 
in 2017, I'd been working with a lot of new Muslims that, alhamdulillah, I, I, I was able to give them their shahada and teach them their basic fard ayn. And I always use the book Being Muslim. So because I was giving out so many books, I, I reached out to Dr. Asad uh, really just to get some books maybe at wholesale or to get a larger quantity so that I, because I was buying them at uh, on Amazon at full price, I said, maybe I can get a box maybe at wholesale. And then I said, uh, have you ever thought about doing the book in Spanish? And he was like, no, let's do it. Right. And I was like, okay, I'd never done a book project before. I'd never uh, organized this type of uh, project. So it was a first for myself. But I said again, to walk Allah. And uh, they agreed, let's use the same translator that translated Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's book, Purification of the Heart, who is uh, a Spaniard Muslim in Spain. And then we used uh, for the editing, uh, one of the brothers, uh, who's an Usted uh, from Al Makassid, he edited the book, and he's uh, from the Dominican Republic. So that project took about one year to complete. So in 2018, we launched around March of 2018. Uh, the launch of the book was in Cuba, and we've hence distributed books and traveled to the Dominican Republic. Uh, and I, we have sent books pretty much around the world to Spain, to Argentina, to Mexico. What's the experience for the converted sisters over there? For the, the ladies who are helping you, the editor and the translator, they are both Brazilians, right? Yes. So uh, what, they share, what they share with you about their experience being Muslim in Brazil, being a convert in Brazil? So alhamdulillah for Rebecca, mashallah, she was fortunate to, I think she was working, I'm not sure if it was Doctors Without Borders or some other organization, she was working in Morocco. And then someone told her about the Rihla and she went on Rihla, uh, which is uh, kind of like a, a, re a large retreat sponsored by the Dean Intensive. And she was fortunate in 2012 to take her Shahada at the hands of Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Sheikh Yahya Rodas. And that the blessings that came from that and being around the teachers like Dr. Umar Farouk, that instilled in her knowing that we need to provide knowledge for the sisters in Brazil because many of the sisters in Brazil, I mean, there's approximately seven to 10,000 converts in the state of Sao Paulo. Seven out of 10 of the converts are women and half of those women are single mothers. So there was definitely a need to provide not just spiritual care, mental health care, emotional care, and just overall wellness to enhance their ability to thrive as a community. I think from what I've seen and many of the questions that I've gotten from the WhatsApp group that she has, there's so much confusion and knowledge and information and for the sisters that may still live at home, who their parents don't know. They don't know what to say to their parents. They can't wear the hijab because then at work, they don't want them to wear it. So I think the biggest thing that the sisters are missing is people to help support them on this journey because everyone that I've encountered or answered a question for is holding to the rope of Allah dearly. And it's by Allah that they are all still Muslim 
because mm. this is something they really, really want. And I think it's really the education is what they lack because they might encounter a situation at one of the mosques that has this much more rigid approach and it scares them. And or they might be in a situation they cannot wear the hijab or maybe they don't want to wear the hijab or they're not sure, you know, about some of the other matters. Uh, a lot of the sisters have experienced problems by getting involved, speaking to, you know, men from other countries online and getting married and then having, you know, like this. You know, experience. encounter with a narcissist yeah. and, and really taking them. I mean, it's spiritual abuse. Yeah. So that's something, especially in Cuba, that I've really been really adamant about is ultimately my support is first to the sisters, because no matter who's doing Dawa, no matter what teacher it is, no matter what group it is, if it's only men, women are always an afterthought. And men are just not going to be thinking about women's issues at the first thought. So for me, women's issues as sisters is the most important thing to me. And the same thing in Cuba, women were marrying men from other countries and really just suffering at the, the, the worst spiritual abuse. And really, spiritual abuse is, as you know, in mental health care, is probably one of the hardest things to even remotely be able to recover from. So the experiences, ultimately, they just want to continue to learn. They want to learn, but they want to learn the right way. They want to learn really with the passion and the character of the Prophet Sallallahu with love. What is the love, the mercy? It's not about halal, haram. Yes, no, black and white. They need to see what it is like to not have this Islam that is so boxed in and so rigid. That's been my understanding so far. And I will see more when I'm on the ground, inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah, in my, in my experience, when I convert to Islam, I got in a group of uh, um, Brazilian, Muslim, Brazilian Muslims, and they live with some of them in Brazil, some of them around the world. And uh, one thing that I noticed is, like you said, the spiritual uh, abuse. A lot of them were married with men overseas, and they just troll on them. Look, my mom did this, my sister did this. The life is like this, and they were they don't they didn't have the resource. They didn't know uh, if it was right or wrong. They just follow through and brought them so much suffering. Uh, so many sisters like end up getting divorced and. Or end up traveling to the Middle East and get there, and they were so mistreated in the Middle Eastern countries. And all they wanted was like meaning and find Islam and Allah straight. So I, I have the same had the same experience. I, I learned from from people mm -hmm. um, the story you are you're sharing. Yeah. It's very sad. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's a number of things that happens. You know, converts in general, but maybe I'd say, you know, kind of the white the caucasian white sisters the african americans they've all had their round of projections you know racism um kind of not being valued right like this you know i feel like it's a collective uh, projection of the muslim community's racism where mm -hmm. we sometimes still almost like 
like these, I hear this, these cases all the time, right? Oh, a convert. So it's almost like uh, some people take this as a position of power. Like, oh, I'm going to get to say what's right and what's wrong. And a lot of times, like you said, if you're married to some narcissist or some stubborn jerk, uh, huh. They're just going to politicize their religion and weaponize it and be like, well, I was born Muslim and I know. And half, see, this is the okay. issue that I'm worried about is mm. many people who become Muslim, whether they're male or female, sometimes mm-hmm. there's this ideal idealization of what I learned about the tradition. And now when I show up to the masjid or hang out with Muslims or marry one, oh, isn't that what I'm going to experience? And it turns out that 90% of the Muslims out there like all of us, we've got a lot of learning to do as it is. And most Muslims today, I would say, don't have a holistic or solid foundation in understanding their deen. They have a cultural, politicized, post-colonization, you know, inheritance from their immigrant parents. And that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that none of that was good or useful. Of Mm -hmm. course, there Mm -hmm. is good. But there's a big difference between, you know, and these are examples of how religious and spiritual abuse happens, right? Is Mm -hmm. that somebody doesn't know any better, and then they marry a Muslim who doesn't also know any better, for the most part. Right. And then the whole thing, you know, gets messed up and throw a few kids in there, leaving my home country. And now you're in an extremely vulnerable situation. So one advice right. I would give anybody out there, especially sisters who are converts, is don't jump into a marriage until at least a year or two of learning your deen and knowing better. Because if someone tries to pull, you know, something shady on you, you at least have the knowledge to go, that is not in the Qur'an, or that is not something the Prophet or Allah would approve of based on mm-hmm. what I know. But if you right. know nothing other than, I like, this is the truth, and I want to learn as much as I can, you're now entrusting yourself to another. And while entrusting to others is a part of human growth and learning, we have to. We trust in our teachers, we trust in each other, etc. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we're, we're, we have to be careful about being too naive, and we need to have a little more of that sincere skepticism, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because unfortunately, yeah. uh, many people find themselves in situations that are unhealthy. And there's also a lot of people out there that take advantage of the very mm-hmm. uh, fragility and vulnerability of the situation. Mm-hmm. What do you mm-hmm. think, sister? Do you think this is also happening in, let's say, New York from the sisters you know? Have you experienced you oh. know, cases like what? this all the time? Or is it you know, not happening as often these days? Is it majority? What's your feedback? Uh, so the first thing I'd love to say about that is that, you know, this thing of that good character doesn't mean you have to be naive, good character, you can still be stern. And if something is not right, you stand up to it. And really, I've watched many sisters in the U.S. be very vulnerable and fall into marriages with people that they met online And then they get their papers and then before they know it, the person dumps them at the doorstep once they get their green card. I've watched it time and time again. That sounds so Islamic, mashallah. That's so Islamic. Oh, oh my gosh. And or the person who then has children with someone uh, and then they start physically abusing the sister. Uh, I mean, I've seen and heard it all. I think uh, from, say, my generation, like people who have been Muslim seven to ten years, just I would say more than half of the sisters I know have gone through being burned once uh, and learned the hard way. But like with anything else, you know, uh, this life is a test and the path to Allah is definitely not easy. But along the way, we need to really reinforce education 
as something, as a viable option to empower the women. For example, in Cuba, there are people that are coming from another country in North America, not the U.S., that travel to Cuba and are doing dawa, but then on the back end soliciting women for second secret 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 second marriages. Mm. And this has been my latest dilemma. So we then said we are going to empower the sisters. I totally understand they are very, 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 very financially disabled. And it's very attractive, someone coming from another country, even though it's, even if it's a part-time husband, but that they're providing financial aid, aid to them and their families. But that's where we decided to start doing these uh, retreats uh, via the model of the Al-Makassit ret- uh, weekend retreats that we start at the time. Uh, we start with Tahajud, then there's Fajr prayer, and we start the classes. We have a class right after Fajr. Then we pray what's called duha prayer or the mid-morning prayer, because if you sit from Fajr to the time after sunrise, your reward is a Hajj or an Umrah. That, you know, so in really instilling in them that that structure of really increasing their worship so that they can see the changes in their life versus just getting them on the same routine. Not that there's anything wrong with praying five times a day only, but really conditioning them to increase their worship so that they're really focusing on their relationship with the law. And within that education process of these retreats, we've had a few cases of sisters that have been being approached and almost next to harassment, uh, the people will send their wives, will send other sisters, will send community leaders to try to convince a sister that they should marry said person and be a second wife. So we have given, empowered them with enough education to push back and say, no, thank you. No, thank you. I do not want to participate in something that I don't feel is just. Yeah, it's and a- Sorry, I, of course, the, the the convert male also need resources and everything. But for the woman, it's a very vulnerable situation yes. because if they don't have access to knowledge, uh, they will, they might think that well, maybe marry a Muslim man is going to be you the know solution. the solution. That's all. That's all I have. Another problem besides getting second wife uh, uh, and people with less knowledge, uh, it's uh, this the I'm uh, sorry, how you call it? Uh, the contract, the marriage contract. Nikah. Nikah. Because it's a verbal a thing, it doesn't require a lot of uh, um, uh, bureaucracy or anything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. many men just start telling women, so you know, we're just going to do a nikah. Now it's everything all set. You're Muslim, I'm a Muslim. And then after they get what they want, okay, I divorce you, nikah is over. That happens a lot to the US yeah. and happened a lot to the group of Brazilians uh, that I mm. had contact with in the past. It's mm. unfortunately women's very vulnerable in yes. the end of the day they just want to learn and you know follow a lot. It, mm. It's a sad to yes. see that people take I, advantage of them. Certainly, I want to just clarify that in no way, shape, form, or fashion do I in any way, you know, second second marriages are totally lawful by Sharia. But I'm talking about situations that are not transparent 
and that are somewhat spiritually abusive. Whatever the Sharia does say that is lawful, but there are parameters and there's ways to do things properly. Yeah, right. of course. I'm really glad you brought that up, Sister Zainab, because we sometimes just uh, say, oh, it's all just a big mess. But no, the reality is why polygamy is such a mess is because so many brothers have ruined it for those after them, right? And I actually had a, di- a debate with somebody online once because I was giving a sister advice who went through this very experience. Like her husband mm. did one of these, you know, secret marriage. And I was giving her the advice of, look, you have every right to say this may not be something you want to keep, but you also have to recognize the sacrifice. She was already married for, I don't know, 20 years with kids and mm-hmm. loved her husband. So I was like, in the end of the day, this is, you know, painful. But I was also giving her advice about the fact that her husband did it in secret and all these things was wrong. So mm-hmm. I, I was responding to the sister in an article and then some other person, you know, came to me on, you know, was chatting, was like, I'm really upset and disappointed in you. How could you tell the sister she has the right to divorce her husband because he's going to marry a second woman? This is Allah's right. And I said, look, brother, first of all, marrying a second woman is not obligation. Being honest is an obligation, right? Living up to your virtue and the akhlaq and adab of Islam, that's an obligation. So are you going to sacrifice what is wajib on you, your responsibility Mm. towards your current family, being Mm -hmm. upright in your character for something that is not even necessary or wajib? And if yeah. you are somebody who wants to do it, again, I'm not against it, then right. just do it the right way. And exactly. if you do it the right way and it's made easy, that means there's barakah and Allah's going to, inshallah, bless it. If you're doing it for Allah, it's going to mm-hmm. be facilitated, right? If mm-hmm. you're not, then of course there's going to be a big mess. And that's what we often see because it's usually a reason of the nafs, not about course, Allah or which... I really want to help, you know. And you look, you know. Everybody has knows what's between them and Allah. We don't know what's mm-hmm. in people's hearts. But mm-hmm. the reality is, the after effect or the impact tends to tell us a lot about what was going on in the intentions, right? Mm-hmm. At least of, of some of the parties involved. So yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I'm wondering if my uh, feedback resonates with you. Certainly, 100%. I mean, I just think that these situations, especially in a country like Cuba... There is no real accountability. So people can come from other countries, which number one, there's there's so many things wrong with the way this is being done there. Number one, there's several unmarried Cuban convert men. People shouldn't be coming from another country to marry their women when there's so many unmarried men which means that it's going to fragment their own stability of their own community, especially once they have children. Uh, Historically, the men don't stay in Cuba. Also, there's a lot to gain by marrying a Cuban citizen because otherwise you have no rights. Uh, You're able to get some sort of uh, residency or citizenship, citizenship, but you cannot own a business or any property in Cuba, unless you're a Cuban citizen. So on so many levels, even though you can be bringing financial aid, but you are also diluting a culture that is very rich and goes back many centuries that does not need to be altered. They just need to learn how to worship a law based on his commandments and avoid the prohibitions. They don't need to take on another culture and dilute their own because then as their generations continue, people will 
lose their Cuban side of their identity. Yeah, uh, identity. Their identity. Yeah. Right, right. And, and again, you have all these Cuban brothers unmarried. Who are they going to marry? It, it, it's, it's just, just like, like a, a cycle of on one end. Okay, technically you might be bringing aid, but you don't need to bring aid and marry women. You can marry women in your own country. Right. Because you got to think about the long term. Yeah, you're you're suggesting the long term impact here of their own sustainability as a native community, right? If everyone's just like, oh, yay, let's go marry all the sisters from these countries, and there's also brothers converting there who are also financially in a difficult bind, they're definitely you're decreasing their likelihood of getting married, which is already low. Right, and also, I you know, there's a lot of heat where they're coming from in North America about this secret second marriage situation. So there's been a lot of articles and uh, docu-series regarding this problem now up north. And it just seems that it just doesn't seem transparent. Why would you go from one country to another? And again, like I said, why would you disrupt an existing cultural identity? And how would that seem relevant to the Dao work? Do you think this has to do with uh, of kind of this extension of the already existent uh, racism or ethnocentrism within the Muslim community? And so what happens in the kind of process of marriage is it manifests through almost um, this fetishization or right, like making like, oh, the yes. African sister, the white sister, the Latina. It's like we fetishize. Yeah. And it's like, and then we project like, oh, because you're Puerto Rican, you must, you know, know ABC right. or you're going to be right. like this. Yes. But sometimes 100%. the sisters that come from those backgrounds are more strict and conservative than your own sister from your Pakistani or Arab family, right? So Correct. this, some, do you notice that this is, uh, I mean, this is part of why we have to do this education. So sisters 100%. can protect themselves. Muslims within our community need constant growth and knowledge and awareness, as well as awareness about the heritages and backgrounds and the different types mm-hmm. of people that are coming into the deep, right? Yes. What, what are your thoughts about that? And maybe you can uh, share more about it, perhaps any advice, because I know you're very busy. Uh, advice yeah. you have towards uh, convert sisters generally, or maybe even Latin sisters, Latina sisters in general, if you haven't. Well, definitely with my experiences uh, in this, these cases that we have now, especially in Cuba, What's really important is that people need to know if you're experiencing something that is abusive and where a lot of these men are getting away with this is a under the guise of religion and dawa or the fact that you don't know anyone. You don't have a Muslim family because any of my born Muslim friends have to go through father, brothers, uncles, like there's none of this. It's going to happen. And your whole family, male, uh, male siblings and, and father and such are not going to get involved and put the guy in check. So I think it needs to be, people need to have a place to say and not to, and this is where myself as a female teacher a lot of male teachers or imams, let me not say the teachers, because the scholars that I'm around are not like that. But let's just say imams may not have the credentials or any kind of real understanding of doing any kind of mental health 
providing any kind of mental health care, emotional care. They're really not, that's not their knowledge base. It's not their background. So they kind of tend to, from what I've seen and heard, kind of like brush things off or like, oh, sister, or like, you know, somebody could really be in a life-threatening situation or just simply be in an abusive situation and there's no one to hear their cries. So I think it's important that there needs to be designated people that are working in that realm of supporting women, sisters, in situations that they need some credible knowledge or some source of comfort or this is what you do. You ask for a hula. Goodbye. See you later. I'm out of here. Right. Or or places that, you know, there's rarely any resources, let alone in the U.S., for a sister who has to flee from uh, an abusive situation or just in a situation that clearly is not what she signed up for. Right. I've had, yeah, I mean, I've had like three cases like that in this last year. Just a convert marrying some guy who's totally, you know, I know everything and everything applies to you, but it doesn't apply to me. You know, it's like, right. It's these nightmares, you know? So, you know, sisters out there, if you just got married, <laughs> please don't have any kids. Try your best right? and keep well, learning and, and get uh, some entrusted friends that, you know, can support you. And you have to talk to people about it. Don't right. believe everything that you hear because sometimes, you know, unfortunately, some people aren't always as honest and sincere as we hoped. Uh, right. And this is what happens when someone gets entangled with a narcissist. It's slow. So that, you know, that cycle of abuse is slow going. And until a person finally realizes, which may take a few years and a few children later, that they've gotten involved yeah. with somebody who has a real serious emotional personality disorder that there is no changing that person and they need to just walk away. But again, you know, as a sister, my first concern in any country I travel to and every country has a different dynamic. There are certain issues that are similar, but every country has a political dynamic, a Islamic organization dynamic, uh, how the men are in general within these communities, how the imams run the communities, and then the learning that's been available. So I really walk in with a real New York, Puerto Rican Muslim. <laughs> I am not taking anybody's salt. You anything, mean salt? Right. Yeah. Basically, I've gone head to head with brothers and men in every country because I am just not going to lay down and roll over it. I have good character, I have adab, I respect the sharia, I respect what our faith tells us, but I am not going to stand while you're on my watch that you abuse these sisters. I'm going to empower them and teach them what they need to know so they can say, no, thank you, we appreciate it, we're good, you can provide us aid, but we don't need to marry you. Unless they want. Unless they want, you know. Yeah, and the, another important thing for the brothers and sisters that as a convert, we have to create our own culture. Like, we have our... Because Arabs are the one way, Pakistanis are another right. way. The food's different. The way they dress is different. The way they talk is different. So, um, for me, we have our own Egyptian-Brazilian culture here, for Islamic Mashallah. culture, you know. Uh, and this is very, uh, uh, very important for the converts and for the sisters to not get dragged in a cultural 
yes. no sense and you know you can you have the right to create our own yes. and that Islam is the religion your nationality is not going to change yes. your culture not going to change right. move yeah. on um, our son eats uh, dates and farofa for those <laughs> of you who believe, he'll say <laughs> like easily when we I read with him he'll he'll mix uh, he'll have a sentence with vocab from all three languages he'll say monkey comer moz or you know oh, and it's so cute and it's like that's beautiful it's you know it's like and to me or at least to us you know Islam is supposed to be the actual uh, it has the power to realistically bring people together from such different backgrounds. Why? Because in this, in ultimately, it, it realigns us with we all came from the same source, and yes, we're all going back yes. to the same source. So all this other stuff and nonsense of the dunya nationalism, and you know, my culture is better than yours, and ethnos, right? All, that's all dunya, right? And of yeah. course, it's hard to work through, and it's not that simple to just you know take shahada and it all evaporates. No, it right. takes work and dedication. But subhanAllah, the early Muslims at the time of the Prophet dealt with their jahiliyyah. The, yeah. the companions dealt with their jahiliyyah. It it keeps going. It doesn't change. And I think what's interesting is as our, you know, I was born and raised here in the United States. So I grew up with the Muslim community that was run by the immigrant community. Mm, and mm. there was a lot of benefit and a lot of, you know, they established a lot of things for us Mashallah. to survive, and yes. may Allah reward them and, and, and increase them. Um, and then there's all the things that made me go, huh, you know, and, uh, you know, that's a that's another podcast. But it's one of the reasons why, for example, I was called to do what I do, right, is, is provide, you know, human science consulting and spiritual counseling for Muslims in the West, because as somebody who grew up here, I needed that. The idea, uh, going back to the universality, is, you know, it's it can't, we as this upcoming, uh, I think, Muslim community, like the ones who are born and raised here, and perhaps understand notions of pluralism and diversity a little bit better, we also now have to counter the Muslims who are born and raised here who um, are still impacted by some of the immigrant constructs or racism right. or politicization of the religion and community and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do, but at the same time, it's a very exciting time because anytime there is a challenge, it's a calling from Allah for us to step up and do good. Yeah. Without evil, yeah. you don't have a chance to do good and, and uh, walk your talk, right? So are we going to exactly. walk our talk or not? You know, <laughs> that's exactly. the opportunity, subhanAllah. Something else to what you were saying about the the culture. So what's exciting, and, I, and I've always been a proponent of this, is that we always have uh, a few sisters from the actual community who will be cooking the food and I only want Brazilian food. So we're going to have all halal Brazilian food. I was like, I don't want anything else. I want Brazilian food. So we're going to have lunches for everyone, dinners, but we're going to have beautiful halal Brazilian meals. Inshallah. Don't forget to eat goxinha. That's oh, one of my okay. favorites. Goxinha. <laughs> Goshinia. Okay. I'll inquire about that. Maybe it's like a, it's like a chicken me. croquette. It's like a fried, ah, yeah, okay. closed, almost like a empanada, but it's shaped differently and it's a little okay. different, but made Simple of potato. like a pear. Yeah. It's, Ooh, it's it really, sounds lovely. Really dense. It sounds lovely. But you're, but you're like Mrs. Health, right? Uh, yeah. You, you're you're you know. the same lady who did that fit. Uh, like, I remember, I think you did a campaign. Was it the same sister? You did a. Yes. A, a, Naduna. Like, 
That's right. Yeah. So you yes, I had okay, a Muslim now I know your DVD. Face. Yes, that's where I remember. I had a DVD for Muslim women on exercise, uh, which we had launched at the ISNA convention in 2013. So I've been doing a lot of work in the Muslim community at large uh, with health and exercise, and now primarily with an emphasis on prophetic nutrition. That's Mashallah. amazing. Yeah. So you really try to integrate the um, prophetic medicine into your uh, yes. contemporary health fitness programs. Yes, yes. And really, it's a, at the end of the day, it's really all about bringing people closer to the Prophet ﷺ and knowing and learning how to love him. Because really, at the end of the day, none of this, it, you can read everything, but none of it works in, unless to which degree you love the Prophet ﷺ. And I just find that, uh, especially in a lot of Sunday schools, the lot, they might tap into the Sita a little bit, but really this generation is not growing up learning about the Prophet ﷺ like they should. And I think it's important to remind people of these very valuable sunnahs when approximately a fourth of the Shamayal is what a, what did the Prophet ﷺ eat, drink, how he fasted, how he broke his fast, what he recommended to his companions and family. So there's such a huge emphasis on health and hygiene. I mean, something as simple as using the miswak before each prayer. Uh, there's just so many little things that, you know, if we can't get up and pray tahajjud and be able to pray duha prayer and do all these other suppurgatory, you know, additional acts of worship, there's so many little things we can do to connect to the Prophet And that in and of itself is healing. So it's not just this outward manifestation. It's really what's going to penetrate to our hearts to change and remove these diseases that really are the veils between us and Allah. So it's all interconnected. And I think that that's just not really taught as a whole, even in this country. So through the blessings and the teachings from the teachers that I get to sit uh, at their feet, I've been blessed to, I just did Hajj this past year, um, uh, 1439. I've been to Umrah three times. And honestly, I did not taste my religion until I was in the presence of the beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, until I had my forehead in the Rauda, until I felt and, and was connected to that love. I had not tasted my religion. And that really was the most transformative outcome of being in Medina primarily for me is this real loving connection to the Prophet um, amongst sending salawats and doing the things to keep him in mind throughout the day, whether it be if you're cooking, uh, before cooking, make wudu, before you're going to have a podcast, make sure you're in wudu, make a dua, pray, uh, you know, recite Surah Al-Fatiha. We need to incorporate blessings because the unseen realities are beyond anything that we can even conceptualize. And we're just fighting so many evil forces that we see and that we don't see. And we need to reinforce daily. And people are suffering with mental health care issues, emotional issues, spiritual issues, that they need to connect to something. And social media has become such a, a toxic uh, anomaly and just has absorbed people in such a way, especially the youth, that I think 
having a social media presence and it being a constant reminder to Allah and the Prophet Sallallahu whether I have one follower or 30,000 followers, yeah, I may not have hundreds of thousands of followers, but you know what? My job is not to have followers. It's to bring people closer to Allah and the Prophet Sallallahu And if it's one person that feels closer, we've done our job. Alhamdulillah. My job is not to have followers. It's to help. It's right. to follow the Prophet and help others follow the Prophet. Exactly. I also heard you say that we, you know, consciously... You know, nourishing and investing, not only in our physical immune system, but our spiritual immune system Mm -hmm. is what's going to help us fight off existential bacteria and germs and viruses and all this yucky stuff that we don't want in our bodies as well as our souls. 100%. 100%. Sister Zainab, I'm so glad we uh, connected today and uh, I would love to have you on again soon, perhaps when you're safe home from your trips. Yes, inshallah. I would love to tell you both about the trip when I get back inshallah so beautiful may Allah reward you both thank you thanks for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast don't forget to leave us a 5 star review on iTunes today go sponsor this podcast right now at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem links are in every description of the show visit coffeewithkareem.com the official website follow us on Instagram Facebook join our newsletter and check out some of our jams Thanks again for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast.